and scripture reading will be from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captive of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. As we study history, we look down through the ages and we see different times and eras. The 17th century was known as the Age of Enlightenment. The 18th century has been called the Age of Reason. The 19th century has been called the Age of Progress. We get to the 20th century and it was known as the Age of Extremes. Perhaps we can call the 21st century the Problem Age. Should enlightenment, reason, and progress lead to extremes and problems? Should they lead to anxieties and fears? Paul's description of his time, for he lived in the last days, just as we are living in the last days, when we look in Acts chapter 2, Paul said, This is that of which Joel spoke, and we are living in the last days, is a great description of our time. The state of Texas just passed a law protecting the lives of the unborn, or trying to protect the lives of the unborn anyway. And then as I was looking at the news just the other day, and I didn't read much of it, but I came across some responses of some prominent actors and celebrities, and they gave a whole list of some of those folks. I guess we're supposed to look to Hollywood to determine how we're supposed to consider what we're to believe on things uh, of great importance like the, the sanctity of life and marriage and things of that nature. And there was uh, evidently a tweet sent out and And a a list of of many, many, many of those celebrities from Hollywood said, I stand in solidarity with Texans and people everywhere seeking reproductive freedom. They were against that stand that Texas made uh, to protect the life of the unborn. Well, I think God has a completely different view of health care and what that consists. Notice what... Solomon wrote Proverbs 6, 16-19. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to Him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 
a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. It wasn't that long ago that George Bernard Shaw said, the Bible is more up to date than the morning newspaper. If we look at what Paul wrote to Timothy almost 2,000 years ago, and we look at what's happening in the world today, that's the same thing. Maybe we are living in the problem age. If one were to look closely at the problem age, it becomes clear that the problem age is trying to drink its way to prosperity, destroy its way to plenty, war its way to peace, hate its way to love, sin its way to God, divide its way to unity, divorce its way to marriage, and drift its way upstream. I think our politicians are doing all they can to divide the nation. Within that, they are warring their way to peace among the inhabitants of this nation, destroying the prosperity of the working class to give to those who refuse to work, believing that will bring prosperity to a once great nation. I don't believe there is a greater example of trying to hate its way to love than the socialist and communistic systems the world is trying to implement throughout, and it's even in our own nation today. That isn't compassion. That's crippling those who it is trying to make dependent on a government for every aspect of life. They want to talk about unity among a people, and I believe those people who are in charge are some of the most divisive in the history of this country. Was Paul talking about something happening 2,000 years ago or something happening this morning? Fear, turmoil, chaos, uncertainty, desperation, all that describes the problem age. And the result is drug and alcohol abuse, addictions of all kinds, just so people feel like they can make it through the day. In 2017, 19.7 million people aged 12 and older were in need of alcohol and drug abuse care and treatment. In 2020, $429 million worth of over-the-counter sleep aids were sold because people couldn't get a good night's sleep because of stress. Did you know that 44,000 tons of aspirin is consumed every single year And a large quantity of that is for tension headache because of stress. 44,000 tons of aspirin. Hey, I like aspirin. But 44,000 tons? That's a lot of aspirin tablets. And then you have all of these mixed messages by people who are not God who say they have the answers. The fatalist says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we might die. The pessimist says, what's the use, as he throws up his hands because he is in dismay and defeat. Here's what the atheist says. He says, there's no God, there's no hope past the grave, so let your conscience be your guide in whatever you choose that to be. The ambitious says, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Those with the most, when they die, win. The strong believe might makes right. The denominationalists say, and there are over 40,000 groups who claim to be Christians, 
There are over, listen to that again, there are over 40,000, quote, Christian denominations in the world. They say attend the church of your choice, approach God in however way you choose to do that and worship Him in however you choose to do that. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I'll build my church. That's a singular possessive pronoun. If those aren't problems, there aren't any. People of all stations in life provided their answers to the problem age. But God has the answers. That's the title of the sermon this morning. God has the answers. There is a difference between the various people in the world and what they say and what God says. People write books. Men write books. But God's book makes men. That's the answer. In speaking to King Agrippa, Paul told the power in the message with which Jesus sent him to the Gentiles, Acts 26, 18. Then Agrippa told him in verse 28, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. He would go on to tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. He did that because he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because he knew it was the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 Now that is the assertion of the power of God. But where is the proof that the message is the answer to the problem age? You know, the old saying is the proof is in the pudding. But perhaps the proof of the pudding is in the eating. God has the answers for the problem, age, in His message. First point I want us to notice is He has a message of passion for an age of disgust. I think it is easy to determine there is a lot of hatefulness in the world And there is an eagerness for love. People are looking for it. People are searching for it. How do we know that? How many songs, novels, poems, TV programs, and movies are based on some aspect of love or the need for it? People are searching for it. They're begging for it. They're looking for it. There's an emptiness for it. There's a hole for it that needs to be filled in some way. And they're using everything in the world to fill it with except for what they need. How many people in the world feel as if they are lost in the world and no one loves them? The world is full of that. But the gospel message is a message of love from the beginning to the end. you know how many times the word love itself is found in the Bible? We're not talking about some derivative of love like lovely or loving. Just the word love. Not the word charity, which also means love. Just the word love. Well, in the King James Version, it's found 311 times. In the New King James, it's found 362 times. 
In the English Standard Version, it's found 552 times. That's a lot. Paul told those in Rome how God demonstrated His love. He demonstrated His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. John added, In this was manifest the love of God toward us, 1 John 4, beginning with 9, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that the world was full of righteousness. Not that the love understood and wanted to show their thankfulness toward God for all that He had done, but that God loved the world and sent His Son to die for the world so that we wouldn't have to. That is why the gospel is founded upon love because He gave His life and He gave His blood. In fact, this is what Jesus said. John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this that a man laid down his life for his friends. And that's what he did. He gave it up. He laid it down. They didn't take it from him. He allowed them to have it. And he expects each of us to crucify the weaknesses of this life and to live righteously. Paul told the Galatians, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus didn't die so I could live in sin. He died so I could be free from sin. There is an eagerness for love. God's answer for the problem age is an answer of passion in an age of disgust. And God's message encourages it. It encourages love. His message to the Thessalonians, Paul said, But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. The writer of Hebrews added the admonition, let brotherly love continue, Hebrews 13.1. The message even encourages us to love our enemies, doesn't it? Matthew 5.44, after all, isn't that for whom Jesus died? He didn't die for a group of people who were in love with Him, who were screaming out their, their regard for His well-being. You recall what they screamed out? Crucify Him! Kill Him! Get rid of Him! They wanted him gone. I think there's too much of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth being practiced in our society. The message encourages us to love God with all of our being. Matthew 22:37. That's the first and the great commandment, isn't it? The second one is just like it. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Verse 39. That is the answer to one of the problems of the problem age. A message of passion in an age of disgust. But I also want us to notice something else. God has an answer for another issue. 
in the problem age. He has a message of peace in an age of disputing. That's our second point. A message of peace in an age of disputing. Jesus gave a warning in Matthew 24, verse 6. He spoke of wars and rumors of wars. Now, of course, within that context, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened in A.D. 70. And secular history tells us that not one single Christian lost his or her life in that destruction in Jerusalem. Now, I think we can make an application today regarding what Paul was telling Timothy because the same type of people which Paul spoke of were the same who leveled Jerusalem. They loved and would rather have disputing over peace. We heard what Brother Jeff read for us. What was going to happen in those last days. The things they preferred. That's what they preferred in A.D. 70. Now, let me be clear. What we read in Matthew 24 had already happened or uh, was going to happen. Paul wrote before that. Now, Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but we're talking about an attitude. We're talking about an attitude. They love disputing over peace. Let me throw out a few numbers to you. You're going to be surprised, I believe. Global military expenditure has increased 75% over the last 20 years. Worldwide, it stands at $1.7 trillion annually. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Used on the military. Just think of the damage war has done just to our nation. The Revolutionary War cost 25,324 lives. The Civil War cost 625,000 plus lives. World War I cost 116,516 American lives. 405,399 were lost in World War II. The Korean conflict took another 36,516. 58,209 in Vietnam. From 1990 to 1996, 277 servicemen in the Middle East. From 2001 to 2012, 6,845. And that's not counting since then. But why? Why all the war? But that's what war brings people. But why? Can there ever be peace? If so, what is the solution for peace? From where does it come? Isn't the gospel the answer for peace? I'm not opposed to having a strong military. I think we ought to have one. I'm I'm for protecting our nation and our borders. But what's going to bring peace to the world? Do you know the Bible mentions war 225 times in the King James Version? And it mentions peace 429 times? The gospel provides peace. Well, to begin with, the gospel provides peace between God and humanity. We have to first have peace with God, don't we? Paul told those in Rome, Romans 1-7, "...to all that be in Rome, beloved of God..." called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't have peace with anyone until we have peace with God. 
That peace is made possible through Christ, Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by the system of faith. That's what Paul's talking about in the book of Romans. How, do we be, how are we justified? We're justified by the system of faith, right? For Christians and those who hope, and as they continue in that hope, in the gospel, that's how that happens, right? We continue in the hope. That's what he told those in Colossae. Colossians 1.23, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Without the gospel, there is no Christ. Without Christ, there is no gospel. And without Christ, there is no peace. That is why Jesus could tell the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, 1. Then it provides peace between people. The gospel provides peace between God and humanity and then between people. If one can have peace with God, he can have peace with his fellow man. But it has to start with God. In speaking of the qualifications of an elder, Paul told Timothy, a bishop must have good behavior, 1 Timothy 3, 2. And to have a good reputation among those outside of the church, verse 7. But those are qualifications all Christians must have, especially those who oversee the flock over which God has made one an overseer. He must have a good reputation. He must have good behavior. He must be able to get along with other people. Must have peace, right? All Christians are to do that. Those are a few of the answers to the problem age. A message of passion in an age of disgust. A message of peace in an age of of disputing. And finally, I want us to see the message of profession in an age of doubt. We're living in, in the problem age. There are many faiths we just mentioned. Just the Christian faith alone, there are over 40,000 denominations outside of the true church of the New Testament. And those faiths are not accurate. Those are not accurate faiths. People doubt the existence of God, the virgin birth of Jesus, the authenticity of the Bible, the existence of a literal heaven and a hell, and the list goes on and on and on. Where are they getting their answers? A person's footsteps will falter unless his focus and aims are based in true and accurate faith. Paul very clearly stated, Talking about the Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Many of those things we just mentioned have been doubted by those who claim to be Christians and by those who are members of the Lord's church. It hasn't been that many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, 
that a professor at Harding College over in Searcy, Arkansas, teaching a class, taught in his class that Isaiah 7.14, when it spoke of a virgin, was simply speaking of a young girl, not a sexually pure girl. Can you believe that? Why would anyone doubt that? Are those people walking by faith or by sight? The whole idea of walking by faith is to step out by faith and not by sight. That's the whole idea, right? If we're going to walk by faith, we have to walk. We have to walk. We have to take a step out by faith. Do we understand that? We have to understand that, right? We live according to what we believe, not by what we see. Do we believe in the God of heaven? Do we believe He is all-powerful? Do we believe He will bless our efforts if we do the work, or are we like all the other people in the world? We have to believe. We have to step out by faith. We have to understand God will bless the efforts of the faithful. Either Christians have an accurate faith, or they do not. But what is an accurate faith? One part of an accurate faith is a faith of action. Right? That's what it has to be. The gospel is a gospel of faith. It offers faith, and faith is mentioned 247 times in the Bible. There are all those great examples of faith recorded in Hebrews 11 demonstrating the great success when faith is put into action. Faith is mentioned 32 times in Hebrews, 24 of those in uh, chapter 11. 15 of those is found in the expression by faith. By faith, a person of God did something. By faith, Abraham did something. By faith, Noah did something. By faith, uh, Abel did something. Right? It's actionable. They didn't sit around. And actionable faith is paramount to the gospel. The gospel does not offer a personal faith only doctrine. It offers an obedience to the system of faith doctrine. Each example of conversion in the book of Acts is an example of, faith, of a faith of obedience to the gospel. Notice, repentance is a faith that is willing to do something, to turn one's life around. Confession is a faith that is speaking, that is doing something. I'm willing to make a statement, Acts 8.37. Baptism is a faith that is submitting. Acts 22.16 It's doing something. Prayer is a faith that is communing. Right? A person who's obeyed the gospel and has become unfaithful must commune with God and repent of something. Confess that sin to God. Want to come back to Him and God will forgive that individual. Christian living is faith that is serving. Those are actionable things. That's God's message. He has the answer to the problem age. 
He offers a message of passion in an age of disgust. He offers a message of peace in an age of disputing. He offers a message of profession in an age of doubt. In essence, the gospel offers love, peace, hope, and faith. What better building blocks for an enduring life? Three of those four are found in the great chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13. Notice what verse 13 says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. God has the answers. And if the world would listen and hear, the problem age could become the blessed age. May it become the blessed age. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation, we talked about how to do that. Faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.